Good morning, friends. Would you pray with me as we come to our time in the Word, ask the Holy Spirit to soften our hearts, open our minds to receive these good things from Him? Lord, you have just heard the songs that we've sung, the prayers that we've prayed that have been focused on our joy and thanksgiving for your advent here 2,000 years ago. These words that we sing, even the prayers that we pray are insufficient to communicate our, our great and eternal thanksgiving and joy that is in our hearts because of uh, your grace to us in Jesus Christ. Uh, we know that we will never be able to adequately praise and worship you um, to fulfill all the things that you have done for us. But we have eternity to do these things, and so we intend to, as long as you give us breath, to sing from the depths of our heart with joy and thanksgiving for you, our Lord and Savior. Now as we come to your word, we know that it is in your word that we receive life, and so we ask that your Holy Spirit would now come and open our hearts, open our minds, that we may receive this, these words of truth, these words of life, and that they would change us as you intend. And I pray this in your name. Amen. So good to see you here today as we uh, come to the near conclusion of our Advent celebration. This is the great week that uh, leads up to Christmas. Sunday, which will be next Sunday, and uh, we're very excited about that. I hope that, that you will be here uh, with your family and friends and rejoice with us in all the good things that we have in Jesus Christ. Uh, it's a blessing to be a part of this church with you as we celebrate the Advent, these significant things that we see and hear, um, even from these simple Advent readings and candle lightings that remind us of why Jesus came and our necessary response to that Advent. But now we find ourselves back in the Gospel of Mark that I am thoroughly enjoying and hope that you are too. If you have a Bible, I want you to turn there with me. Mark chapter 11 is where we will be this morning, uh, verses 27 through 33. And as you know, I've mentioned this before, but each of the four Gospels go about trying to convince the reader of the true identity of Jesus Christ. They each go about it their own significant and different way, but each has the objective, the same objective, to convince you and me that Jesus is in fact the Christ, the Lord of heaven and earth, this one who called himself and who was Jesus of Nazareth, uh, is who he claims to be. The God of heaven who came to take care of the problem of sin, the chaos of sin. <laughs> the Apostle John that we just read this morning just comes out and says it. This is God full of grace and truth. All the others, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, are a little more discreet in how they go about proving or claiming the true identity of Jesus Christ. And as we've seen, Mark is well into his, his evidence that we have. In fact, we've been following Mark's argument for the past year and a half and have seen quite the display, haven't we, of evidence that, that he has given concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ, claiming, Mark is claiming, that of course Jesus 
is the only one who can fully handle the chaos of this world, can only, the only one in existence can handle the chaos of your life, all these things created by sin. Uh, and, but Mark is presenting him as the solution to that. The, the gospel writers, as I said, each present their own evidence to support this. And after reading all the evidence that we have come across in Mark, maybe even all the evidence that you've come across in Matthew, Luke, and John as well, uh, de demands that you make a decision. Uh, and you say, Pastor John, I've already made a decision. Back in junior high camp, I, I asked Jesus to be my Lord and Savior. Well, that's great, but what did you do this morning? <laughs> how, how has your life reflected that commitment that you made in junior high camp? What is your life about today? You know that the gospel is never discussed in the, in the entire Bible in the past tense. It's always discussed in the present tense. How's your life today? Is there evidence in your life that you have in fact embraced the evidence of Jesus Christ being the God of heaven, the savior of your soul? That's what these things are about in the gospels that are before us. Let me read the text and then if you'll follow along, I want to, I want to explain and apply these things to you this morning. This is Mark chapter 11, verse 27 through 33. And they came again to Jerusalem, and he was walking in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority to do them? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, then he will say, Why did you then not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Mark summarizes his questions to his readers uh, in this book um, by way of story. Mark is, is not just telling us a story about a, a group of old fogies 2,000 years ago who were questioning Jesus' authority. Mark is asking you to answer the same question. Who do you say that Jesus is? Who cares what the old fogies think about Jesus 2,000 years ago? Right? What do you think? That's what Mark wants to know. That's why he gives us the story. To ask you to think about your own opinion concerning this Jesus Christ. And Mark simply uses this story, these religious leaders in fact, to ask his questions to us. Here are the questions. Who is Jesus? Or do you believe that he is who he claims to be? Secondly, what does all the evidence suggest? All the evidence that Mark has produced, and if you want to broaden the circle, all the evidence that Matthew, Luke, and John, and the Apostle Paul have produced, that the entire Bible has produced, what do you do with the evidence? <laughs> Even evidence from secular arena, like Josephus. What do you do with the evidence? 
And then thirdly, if in fact you are convinced by the evidence, have you or are you willing to step over the line and publicly commit yourself to him for life? Which is what being God demands. So the first point in our sermon here this morning relates to the person of Jesus Christ. Who is he? What is the evidence for who he is would be the second question. And as you've already seen this morning, because we are committed to seeing God's will for us in Scripture, instead of looking at just stories, I want you to look at how the antagonists in this story responded to Jesus by describing the then. And then under each point, I want to maybe bring the focus onto your own heart on how you might respond to Jesus by describing it in the now. So then, those people in our story, the religious leaders, the old fogies, and then now, you, sitting here this morning, then and now. So let's look at our first point, rejecting Jesus' authority. In Matthew chapter 23, uh, Matthew was describing the same uh, final entry into Jerusalem, the final week of Jesus' life, Matthew included these words from Jesus' lips. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stone those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as hens gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Jesus is talking from the perspective of God, and throughout Israel's history, he is saying, how often I would have just embraced you if you would have just come. So Jesus is putting himself in the place of the eternal God of the universe in, that, in these comments. Okay, But you were not willing, he said. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And when will that be? Pastor Rick referred to it. A great day when Jesus returns in glory and might. Not on this occasion when he comes humbly like a lamb to the slaughter. He says, you were not willing. It's a similar tone to what you heard me read earlier from Mark chapter 11, verse 33. Then neither will I tell you. You were not willing. Neither will I tell you where my authority comes from. Both have the sound of finality don't they? Both of those phrases. In other words, time has run out, boys. We're about ready to shut this show down, is what Jesus is saying. Jesus had presented Israel with more than enough evidence about who he claimed to be, and yet they persisted in unbelief. The Old Testament told them he was coming, and he came and said, here I am, proved to them that he was who he claimed to be, and they still rejected it. He came to his own, John 1.11, and his own received him not. Time to shut this program down. In the Gospels, the religious leaders are the antagonists, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In every one of them, the religious leaders are the antagonists, um, the foils to Jesus, if you will. Many times they are used by the authors to represent where we, the readers, might be coming from in our examination of Jesus Christ. So when you read about these guys who just seem to be, uh, you know, petty 
and who seem to be arguing foolishly, who seem to reject Jesus on every turn, keep in mind that the four gospel authors are using them to be a mirror to hold up to your face. That's what they're asking you to do. This morning, from this text, so many times um, we, we are tempted to read through the scriptures, especially in the gospel stories, and we find ourselves saying, man, I would have never said that, or I, I would have believed, you know, don't we? Well, these things are included for a reason in scripture. So let's bring it out of antiquity to the present. Then, now, let's look at the present, today. During Passover week, Jesus had his run-ins, of course, with religious authorities, which was typical of Jesus' ministry. Uh, what's recorded here in Mark 11 is the first uh, confrontation of this week, this last week of Jesus' life. Uh, and, if, and if you want to get yourself killed, I guess, in A.D. 30 in Jerusalem, this is a perfect way to start the week. Get into a confrontation with the religious leaders who could accomplish such things. The ruling body of Israel, which is represented here in verse 27, he lists them. The chief priests and scribes and elders, that was a group called the Sanhedrin, made up of 71 important people, aristocrats really. Um, they were who they were. They, they ran the country. They ran the show. They had the money. That was this group. Uh, they were confronting Jesus on this occasion um, because he was interrupting the status quo. He was in the temple, that holy place, turning over things, ruining their business, making a lot of noise. How, what, what right did he have to do this? And of course, that's the, the focus of the confrontation. What do you, by what authority are you doing this? By, who gives you the authority to come in here and say what you're saying and do what you're doing? Um, and, and by the way, who gave you that authority? We don't recall stamping any approval on you or your ministry. And so they could easily see the power and wisdom that Jesus demonstrated through his miracles and his teaching. Um, but they bypassed that quickly because of the negative influence and impact that Jesus and his ministry was having on them and their well-being. Um, and so they asked this simple question. What human or one institution granted you the authority to do these things? Where'd you get your degree? Their question was meant to expose and humiliate Jesus because he wasn't an authorized teacher or leader. He, he had no degree from Jerusalem U or Jericho State. He was here on his own, throwing stuff in the air. They wanted to embarrass Jesus to get him to do one thing, blaspheme. If they could get him to blaspheme in public, then they would have the authority, the right, the proof to put him to death because blasphemy was punishable by death in Jerusalem at this time. And behind the scene here, behind this picture that I'm describing for you, 
God had designed all these things in eternity past and used these particular religious leaders to kill his son and spill innocent and redeeming blood. You say, whoa, wait, God planned this? Yeah, in fact, God killed his son, Jesus. And you say, well, I'm not sure I like the sound of that. Listen to this from Acts 2.23. And there's other places, by the way, but this is one that's fairly convincing. This Jesus, this was the apostles speaking to the crowd. It's actually Peter on his first sermon speaking to the crowd. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. How did this come about? By the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. That's how this came about. God did it. As much as these uh, group of old fogies was instrumental in the death of Jesus, they were tools in the hands of God to accomplish his purposes. God put this all together, this whole scheme together, so that he might save you sitting here this morning. That he might have opportunity to forgive your sin and guarantee your place in etern eternal glory one great day. It, it's stunning to think about it. This particular confrontation here in Mark 11 happened on Wednesday uh, in the temple in Jerusalem. The day before, you remember, Jesus had cursed the fig tree, cleansed the temple, and this confrontation happened because Jesus' extreme behavior. You can't just come into our church and start flipping pews, you know, and throwing the money changers out there, buying books in the lobby. You money changers, throwing you out on your heels. You can't just come in here and do that stuff, right? Unless you're God. And so let's move this into the now. We're not so different, are we? We're not so different than these guys. None of us naturally wants anyone telling us what to do. None of us wants anyone's authority over us. We're Americans for Pete's sake, right? We're independent. You can't tell me what to do. I have a hard enough time paying taxes. And you trying to tell me what to do on Sunday? On Monday? On Thursday night? No. No. We don't want anyone, including God, ruling over us. In fact, I think in our culture, in our day, we grow up being suspicious of authority, even God's authority. If we even believe he exists. Most of the time when you see someone rejecting the authority of God, they'll have all sorts of reasons they do, that they do so, but in the end, they simply don't want God telling them what to do or not do. They want autonomy. And it's not that the apologetics about Jesus and his identity aren't convincing. It's not that at all. It's that if they honestly admitted God's right to rule in their lives, they'd have to give up their self-serving lifestyle. And who wants to do that? I mean, life is about self after all, right? They rejected the authority of Jesus then and now. Let's move to the second point. Refusing honest examination of the evidence. As important as religious leaders are, <clears throat> now, think about yourself today 
As important as religious leaders are, we cannot blindly follow them. Uh, there, there needs to be investigation into what they teach, how they live. Even Jesus gave evidence of his identity and his authority. This is why the Apostle Paul lists character qualities of elders for churches in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. This is why Paul emphasizes that pastors and elders need to have and teach sound doctrine. So examining isn't the issue. Examining Jesus isn't even the issue. He invites, he requests, he commands examination of his identity. Even the Apostle Paul was examined, remember, by the Bereans in Acts 17, verse 11. Now these Jews, that is the Bereans in Thessalonica, were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures to see if these things were so, to see if the Apostle Paul was shooting straight. They examined him. That's then. Now let's, let's look further into then. The, Jesus, the Jewish leaders, rather, of Jesus' day could not deny the reality of Jesus' miracles. Everybody had seen them. They had seen the miracles. They had heard his teachings. But when Jesus specifically gave them an opportunity in John 8, you remember the story, the woman caught in adultery. In that story, Jesus gave anyone standing around the opportunity to identify any wrongdoing in his life or ministry, any sin whatsoever, no matter how minor, bring it forward. If I were to say that this morning, 95% of the church would raise their hand and remind me of a thing or two that you've seen or heard. Jesus gave them that opportunity and not one raised their hand in the moment. All they could come up with in our story, because they couldn't come up with sin, was by what authority are you doing these things? They didn't say he was wrong or that he was sinning by what he was doing. They just wanted to know the authority on which he was doing these things. And the origin of that authority. Where did it come from? Who did it come from? He wasn't certified by any human authority that they were aware of. Like I said, no degrees, no certificates. Listen to J.C. Ryle. Bishop Ryle said this, the words of the 23rd article of the Church of England are wise and scriptural, which say, it's not lawful for any man to take upon him the office of public preaching or ministering the sacraments in the congregation before he be lawfully called and sent to execute the same. This is what, this is what the 23rd article of the Church of England says, and Bishop Ryle, who is spot on, says this is biblical and wise. But Ryle continued in his commentary about Mark 11, Ryle continued and said that God can and does use people without such stamps of human approval all the time. No degrees, no ordinations, and God seems to use people anyway. <laughs> so the question that we must ask and that Jesus is asking these guys to answer is can God work without the affirmation of man? Does God have to get your permission to use somebody? To want a certificate of proof or someone's credentials isn't wrong, is it? We expect these things every day. 
We want a certified doctor, not some quack dealing with our illness, right? In fact, we'll travel to get a really certified doctor. We want experienced and certified financial advisors. We expect mechanics and electricians. We even want our hairdressers to be certified. You know, I suppose <laughs> this is embarrassing, but every time I go to a new barber, I work this question into the conversation. So how long have you been cutting hair? You know, I don't want to look like that guy when I come out of here, you know. We, we want our hairdressers to have some level of certification. Where's your plaque that says I graduated from barber school or something? Well, see, degrees and certifications keep us out of trouble as human beings for the most part. But in Jesus' case, we have something significantly different going on. It seems that John the Baptist was a case in point. Which is why Jesus brought him up. Jesus wanted the false religious leaders to examine the evidence as it related to John the Baptist. Jesus' life and ministry were focused on the massive spiritual dysfunction in Israel. <laughs> he supported everything that he said, everything that he did, with miracles to prove his authority. He says someone, your sins are forgiven. To prove that I can do that, why don't you, by the way, get up off your crippled bed and walk home? That was always the case in Jesus' ministry, all the time. He gave physical evidence and scriptural evidence of his claims to whatever he was doing. On this particular occasion, Jesus was again in control, as he always was, of the debate that he was having with his opponents. And he had them right where he wanted them. When they questioned his authority, he, in typical rabbinical style, countered their question with his own. Okay, it's fair. You've asked me a question about my authority. I have a question for you. If you'll answer that question, I'll answer your question. It was common. That's how rabbis functioned with each other. That's how they debated. So Jesus asked them to explain their response to John the Baptist. I'll answer your question about my authority. You answer the question I have about how you responded to John the Baptist. Was John the Baptist's ministry from heaven or was it from man? This is, this is awesome to see how Jesus is in control of the conversation because Jesus knew that John the Baptist had no credentials. Jesus knew John the Baptist. In fact, he was John the Baptist's cousin. They knew each other. Um, Jesus knew that John the Baptist was sent by God. Jesus knew that the, the masses knew that John the Baptist was sent by God. He also knew that these leaders that he was talking to rejected John the Baptist. The religious elite thought that John the Baptist was a nut, that he was a loose cannon, that he said things that he shouldn't say, that he, he stepped on people's toes. So when he got arrested, they left him in prison. They didn't try to get him out, they didn't try to help, and they allowed Herod to put him to death with not as much as a word. The average citizen, though, recognized John the Baptist as sent by God, and they followed him. Everybody's standing around listening to this interaction between the religious elite here and Jesus. They all knew what took place with John the Baptist. Um, but because of jealousy, the spiritual leaders in Israel rejected John the Baptist. They never affirmed his ministry at all. They refused to examine the evidence. 
So Jesus had them in a corner, just as he knew he would. And he sent them off and they huddled. I can just see these, they huddled, you know, what are we gonna to say to this guy? Um, we know that there's evidence to suggest that John was from God, but we rejected that because he was stepping on our toes. You know what he said about your mom? You know, it's like that kind of stuff, conversation. If we say, as he said, Jesus, as Mark records here, if we say he was from heaven, then Jesus is gonna ask them, why didn't you believe him? And we'll be humiliated. We can't, we can't say it was from heaven. But we can't say it's from men either because all these people here listening think that he was from God. We can't say he's from man, his ministry. And if they, this group of religious leaders, agreed that John's ministry was ordained from God, they would have to acknowledge that Jesus' ministry was the same. No credentials, but proven by evidence that he was from God. They had no satisfactory to give, they had no satisfactory answer rather to give Jesus. And so Jesus pointed this out and his inference was that if they were unwilling to accept the God-given ministry of John the Baptist, which was universally accepted, then they had proven that they weren't interested in honest examination of evidence supporting Jesus' ministry. You guys don't want the truth, do you? is what Jesus was saying. So Jesus' question here concerning John the Baptist and where his ministry came from was really a condemnation of their willful blindness. They didn't want to know. These men were unwilling to honestly evaluate the evidence of Jesus' authority because if they did, they would need to repent. In doing so, they would lose their position of authority, their position of status in front of all these Jewish people, and that cost was too high. So they said, we don't know. Let's move it out of antiquity and into the present. Then, now. It's very, very, very similar with many today. The evidence of Jesus' person and work are overwhelming. You can, you can stay within the script, bounds of scriptures if you want and would be preferable, but you can go outside to secular arena and find a, an abundance of evidence for the person and work of Jesus Christ. But most are unwilling to submit themselves to the evidence and accept that Jesus was in fact God and Lord of the universe, including God and Lord of my life. The cost is too high if I say that, if I do that, if I have to repent of being a self-sufficient individual, well, that's humiliating. Uh, I don't want to admit that I was wrong. I don't want to give up my lifestyle, my position, my, my friendships based on what they think of me. Can't do it. Won't do it. And so what do these people do? They, they say something else. That's a little more acceptable. The church is full of hypocrites. Heard that one? Church is full of hypocrites. And yet they're willing to go to a gym who's full of fat people. <laughs> Interestingly enough. There are too many shady pastors, too many elders who got in fights at the church softball league. Too many neighbors who claim to be Christians who's left their spouses. 
The Bible's too confusing, it has too many contradictions, or I've tried religion, it doesn't work, and on and on it goes. These are the dishonest reasons people reject Jesus. But it comes down to his authority. Will they or will they not submit to his authority? Many suppress their conscience with answers that may briefly satisfy themselves and maybe a listener, but aren't true. If you press these people to give an answer, they say things which they know are not correct, the ones I've just listed for you. They, they love the world and their own way of life. They, they, like the religious leaders in Jesus' day, are unwilling to give those things up. And so they say things like, I don't know. The reason they use these different kinds of defenses is, is because simply saying, I, I don't know, or I don't want to submit to God, and his authority is self-condemning. That, that's why they come up with excuses. If they say, I don't believe that God has authority in my life, that's self-condemning. So they don't say that. They come up with all these other things. All these dishonest reasons for not believing in Jesus and rejecting his authority are usually just excuses to continue a self-centered, sinful lifestyle. The minute you say Jesus is Lord, things have to change, right? So they say, we don't know. We don't know. And saying we don't know or I don't know is not saying that I cannot. It's saying that I will not. It's simply a matter of the will, not of ability. I will not say that Jesus is Lord. I will not say that he has authority over my life because then I'd have to change. And I don't want to. I like my life. I think this is a very sad thing. So many rationalize their rejection of Jesus with their dishonest answers, but in reality, they're actually dealing dishonestly with their own souls. You know, I, I've slammed my finger in doors I've cut myself with a utility knife by accident. I've done a lot of dumb things. I run my thumb through a table saw, for example. And I say, you idiot! How's it going to be with these folks when they face the judgment day? It's not like you cut your fingernail with a utility knife. Being dishonest with your soul is as extreme as it gets. Let's wrap this up by looking at our third and final point regarding man more than God. You saw this coming, didn't you? Yeah. Then, in Jesus' day, his question about John the Baptist was a brilliant question. It required these hypocritical religious leaders to admit their inconsistency, but in doing so, they revealed that their true motive was the opinion of people. We can't say that John the Baptist's ministry was for a man because what? Verse 32, we fear the people. They feared people, man, rather than God. Either of the possible answers 
would have been unacceptable to these religious leaders. We can't say that John the Baptist's ministry was from heaven because we didn't believe him. We can't say it was from man because, we, because the people, we're afraid of the people. And what will they think of us? What will they do to us? They told a direct lie. We don't know. They knew. Jesus asked a simple question about the baptism of John the Baptist. The religious leaders did not obey John because of the same reasons they didn't obey Jesus. They envied his influence and feared his power. So they lied and said they didn't know where his authority came from. They didn't want to offend their constituents after all. We can't do that. That's a price too high to pay. Now let's bring it to the now. The fear of man is a crippling thing, isn't it? We've all experienced it. And we, we think that it gets intense in junior high, but it seems to get worse throughout life. Right? Fear of someone's opinion. Fear of being called a name in junior high to being rejected at your place of work as an adult. Fear of man. Fear of their acceptance or rejection forces many people to do things or say things they don't want to do or say just to gain approval. The fashion industry is based on this, isn't it? I noticed none of you came dressed as Puritans this morning or in your gym clothes. I'm not suggesting either, by the way, especially the gym clothes part. But every business is counting on this kind of human weakness, aren't they? That's how they sell things. Look at the ads. Pay attention to the ads. You know, if you get this car, you, everybody looks at you differently, right? If you wear these tennis shoes, kids, man, everybody's going to think you're Michael Jordan. For sure. This is what Proverbs 29:25 said, the fear of man's the fear of man lays a snare. But whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. The fear of man lays a snare. We've all been snared, haven't we? <laughs> but whoever trusts the Lord is safe. In verse 32 of Mark 11, it says they were afraid of the people. They would rather please this crowd, the ones they didn't like, than to please God. So they lied. We don't know. We don't know the, question, the answer to your question, Jesus. And Jesus' reply was pretty heavy, wasn't it? It was as if Jesus said, then we have nothing more to discuss. You're unwilling to do what is right and to acknowledge the obvious, so we're done here. These men would rather please a group of people than please God. They regarded men rather than God. And so here is the now conclusion. What's keeping you from a total commitment to Jesus Christ <clears throat> and submitting, submitting every part of your life to him? What is it? What's keeping you from stepping over the line publicly and declaring what you know to be true about Jesus? <clears throat> Maybe you've never really examined the claims of Jesus Christ, but I highly doubt that. But what if Jesus is, in fact, who he claims to be? Does your life currently, as you sit here this morning, reflect that Jesus is who he claims to be? 
Is he really the God of the universe? If so, is he the God of your life? Are you concerned that Jesus may not truly be kind and gentle as he says he is, as the New Testament describes him? You're afraid that, that if you submit yourself to Christ, he may send you to be a missionary in Africa? Like my wife, she was to think that. When we were in college, she didn't want to date guys from that college because if they, they might go to Africa as missionaries. <laughs> and I went to Yakima. Not sure which is worse or better. Friends, do you think that, that by saying Jesus is my Lord, that he might hang you out to dry? Maybe you hesitate to give everything that you are to Jesus because you may fear what those consequences might look like to your family to your neighbor, to your friends, to your coworkers. Well, I would encourage this, to at least be honest. At least be honest. Do you really have unanswered questions about Jesus' identity? Or about what the Bible really says? Or about what God really demands? Do you really have questions about that? Or are those facades hiding a more personal question? Are those just excuses to keeping from full commitment? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your faithfulness to us once again. Holy Spirit, You've come once again into our midst and revealed Jesus Christ to us. Our hearts have been exposed to the truth. Our minds have seen exactly what you want us to see. Lord, if there are any in this room this morning who question the identity of Christ, his true identity, whether or not he has authority, then Holy Spirit, simply open their minds and let them see what all of Scripture says. But if there are those in this room who have seen the evidence but reject it because of their worldly, selfish mindset, then Holy Spirit, you have the same power to to change their will. And so simply, Holy Spirit, please, in your mercy, address the, the godless will of those in this room who may have such, so that the results will be the same, that when we see the beauty and glory of the person and work of Jesus Christ, we'll run to it. If we see it but don't want to, then we'll run to it anyways because you change our will, Lord, do these things these gracious things. You indeed, in fact, we've read this morning, are full of grace and truth. 
Please extend that grace, mercy, and truth to each one in this room this morning. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen.